Hi, I'm Elena Becker, and this is PS, the Puget Sound podcast, where we talk with members of our campus community about their Puget Sound experiences. Today, we're recording from Moonyard Studio in Tacoma, Washington, and our guest is Brian Gould, Puget Sound's Director of Financial Aid. Brian, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm particularly delighted to have you because we are recording just a couple of days after October 1st. So, of course, the FAFSA is live. Indeed. And we will get to that in just a minute. But what I want to start with first is your title is Director of Financial Aid. Correct. Will you explain to people what that means? What, what do you actually do in your job? Absolutely. Uh, well, as the Director of Financial Aid, I really oversee our financial aid programs, which consist of both federal and state uh, programs and, and institutional aid as well. So essentially what I'm doing is overseeing our approach to working with students as they um, kind of work their way through the financial aid process, both from admission as well as continuing students. I think often um, admission is the focus, uh, but mm-hmm. we obviously work closely with our continuing students from start to finish uh, throughout their process. And, and things can change throughout the financial aid process. Uh, circumstances change from year right. to year. And so we take a lot of pride in working closely with our students and families to ensure that they're getting um, you know, the most financial aid that they're eligible for, uh, while also counseling them through the process as to how to best uh, qualify for financial aid. Right. And I do think one thing that sometimes gets overlooked when we think about enrollment as sort of a single unit is that the admission office, my office, works almost exclusively with entering students. Your office works with everybody every year. Absolutely. It, uh, and graduate students as well. Right. Uh, while our graduate student population um, is much less at Puget Sound uh, than our undergraduate students, um, all students at Puget Sound have an interest in and and eligibility for financial aid. So we are very much working with our entire student population. And in which respects might somebody interact with your office, with you yourself or with your team at different stages of the process? That's a great question because as kind of social media has continued to explode and the, the, the kind of means of communication has changed, um, I would love to say, you know, email and phone. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, uh, we see a lot of walk-in appointments. Right. Um, students while on campus um, will make their way into our office to ask questions. Um, but predominantly it is kind of what might be perceived as kind of the old way of communicating these mm-hmm. days, which is via email, uh, telephone calls, um, we, we intend to work closely with parents, but we also have to remind parents that uh, their students are really the primary um, person that we'll be communicating with um, once they're enrolled at Puget Sound. Right. And so there's a, a myriad of ways that we communicate, um, but predominantly it would be kind of email, phone, and then, of course, walk-in appointments. And for what reason might somebody need or want to walk into your office or reach out to you of their own accord? Well, while I oversee financial aid, uh, my colleague Cree is our director of student accounts. And so uh, within student financial services, we have this kind of umbrella approach to to servicing our students. Um, So oftentimes students will come in uh, with a question about their bill. Right. Uh, which, of course, is is intimately related to their financial aid. Yes. And so oftentimes, I would say it's it's more of the billing variety of questions that we receive, especially for our continuing students. Sure. Um, but often those questions relate to financial aid, which then will get one of our counselors or myself involved uh, to best kind of understand um, how we can assist. And in terms of thinking about the way that your team comes to the table for those conversations. Will you talk just a little bit about how you made your way to this role and what your own background is in enrollment? Absolutely. Um, I got my master's in student development administration uh, back in 2002. 
I believe it was 2002 or 2003, uh, at Seattle University. Uh, and so I spent the early parts of my career uh, working in residence life and housing, student activities, uh, new student programs, and then realized kind of a few years in um, that my interests had kind of shifted to more of uh, the enrollment kind of perspective. And so I certainly had an interest in data and in numbers and kind of how the institution works, yeah. which kind of brought me more into admission and, and financial aid work. Uh, I was the director of admission um, prior to coming to Puget Sound uh, at Evergreen State College. Um, I got my experience first at Beloit College, which is a small school in Wisconsin. It's another CTCL school? Absolutely. Uh, I've worked pretty much at only CTCL schools now yeah. that I think of it. Um, <laughs> and, and so I certainly align with the, the, the ethos of, of CTCL. Um, but financial aid kind of came um, on the heels of, of in my admission work, where I certainly uh, was excited about and interested in um, counseling students toward the right fit right. Uh, when it comes to their kind of um, uh, student experience. Um, but it then dawned on me that I had as an equal amount of interest in kind of financial fit right. and how students and families can actually um, find ways to afford um, education and, and predominantly private higher education, mm -hmm. which is, of course, where we work. And so those are kind of some of the steps that led me into to this role. Um, but just kind of understanding um, the metrics behind not just the admission process, but then also how do you work with a family to determine what a good financial fit is right. for them as part of their enrollment decision? Do you think that your own background in student affairs and then in admission prior to coming to financial aid affected the way that you approach those conversations and think about them? Absolutely. Um, I think to myself sometimes when I'm talking with a student about our on-campus living requirement mm -hmm. um, and how I, I value that, not just as an administrator in financial aid, but also in kind of understanding um, the philosophy that goes kind of behind being a residential campus. That right. certainly came from my experience working in residential life. Um, from an admissions perspective, um, wanting to ensure that, that students that are making a decision to attend Puget Sound or, or anywhere for that matter, that they're kind of making that decision eyes wide open mm -hmm. and that they truly understand the kind of financial impact of choosing a place like Puget Sound versus another school that, that's on their list. Right. Um, we do a lot to fund our students through financial aid programs. Uh, but I also like to be clear that we're not always able to do enough. Right. And so it's important for students to kind of understand uh, the, the financial fit in, in their search as well as their kind of academic or social fit. And well, even hearing you use the concept of financial fit and using that vocabulary feels to me like a, um, a much more qualitative approach to thinking about financial aid than I think I would have expected prior to coming into this field professionally yeah. in terms of thinking about it like, well, we need to discuss what's possible for you and for your family from a, a, a lived human point of view rather than, well, here's an Excel spreadsheet and you can sort of slide your index fingers across it till they meet yeah. approach. It's funny you use the term um, the, the human kind of um, perspective. Um, I was talking with a student the other day where I really intended to humanize our office for mm -hmm. that student uh, because I think student financial services uh, can often be perceived as just kind of a transactional place. Yeah, sure. It's where I go to pay my bill. Right. It's where I go to get my financial aid offer. Or if I have a problem, probably. Absolutely, yeah. 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 We, we tend to not have students coming into our office daily <laughs> saying, we're so thrilled about all that you've right. done for us. Right. Uh, it's often more, uh, you know, my my 
parent has a question that I, they sent me here to, yeah. to get an answer to. Uh, and so to, to kind of humanize the office is to say that I'm a counselor. I mm-hmm. may be the director of financial aid, uh, but I supervise our counseling and team, and, and I believe myself to be a counselor at heart. Mm-hmm. And so in humanizing the office, what I mean by that is just wanting to convey to students and families that we care Right. Uh, that we understand uh, the challenges uh, that higher education can bring to your pocketbook mm-hmm. as well as to your, your kind of you know family dynamic. Right. And so um, we spend a lot of time um, training our team and also um, intentionally um, wanting to best understand a student's concerns and, and more importantly, their financial challenges. Right. Uh, so that we can, you know, educate them in a way where if they need to say no, mm-hmm. that that's not always the wrong answer. Right. Uh, and that I want them to look back on their experience at Puget Sound um, with excitement and with enthusiasm and not with any sort of regret by virtue of, of say, the loans that they had to take out in order to make this happen. Right. Well, and I think one of the reasons that that becomes such an important part of the process is that particularly if you have never applied to college before, if you don't have an older sibling who has applied to college before, but really, even if you do, it is such an overwhelming process to, mm-hmm. to face down a lot of very bureaucratic-looking forms mm-hmm. and paperwork that feels and is very high stakes mm-hmm. and hope that you're doing it right. Absolutely. And the FAFSA, which for those of you listening is the free application for federal student aid, uh, can be a very intimidating application. Right. Um, I think of when I'm talking with our staff, sometimes I will say to them, you know, it's hard for people to walk in here and unpack their financial reality. Yeah to just be evaluated and determine whether this is going to work for them or not. Right. That's not an easy conversation. Uh, and so we want to be sure that we are kind of showing care in in those conversations, but we, we recognize that they need to happen. Yeah. Um, we need to understand a student's or a family's finances in order to best counsel them towards making a good decision um, financially. And so uh, the FAFSA, it, you mentioned October. Uh, this is a timely addition. Um, <laughs> October 1 is when the FAFSA opens for the following academic year. Uh, so students are already filing that FAFSA for fall 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really the, the starting point for us to start working with families to better understand, okay, how does your expected family contribution, which is a result of filing the FAFSA, right? How does that inform the kind of financial aid that we may or may not be able to provide you in order to attend? And what is the answer to that question? Well, um, it varies. Um, The less financial need a student has, the easier it is for us to meet it. Right. (laughs) Uh, And and so uh, when you file the FAFSA, um, essentially uh, what what the FAFSA does is it provides a starting point for institutions to best ascertain uh, the, the, the financial strength or lack thereof of a family. Right. And so the expected family contribution can be as low as zero, which means that the FAFSA believes that that family may not be able to spend even $1 on a year's right. worth of higher ed. Uh, it could go into six digits, which means that the family has you know a lot of financial strength. And just to clarify for anybody listening, that expected family contribution is the number that the FAFSA spits out That's to correct. overgeneralize. And, and it spits it out regardless of where you intend to go. Right. And so if you're applying to a community college, a four-year private, and a for your public, the FAFSA's EFC is going to be the same regardless of where it is you you choose to attend, which can be confusing because oftentimes families believe it's a guarantee or a promise or, you know, I'll hear sometimes the FAFSA said that we can afford $10,000. you are asking me to pay $15,000. What's with that? Um, And so that's the the EFC is is not a promise or guarantee. It's really just an output 
mm-hmm. of the FAFSA. It does determine whether you qualify for a federal Pell Grant. It's also used to determine whether you qualify for a subsidized loan versus an unsubsidized loan. So, so don't get me wrong. There's a lot of value to understanding what your EFC is. Right. Uh, e- even you, beyond what that number is. Absolutely. Yeah. It, what it will qualify you for or right. not. Um, but when it comes to making a decision to attend an institution, you'll have a financial aid award that can vary from school to school. Right. And that's where sometimes the confusion can set in is because your FAFSA is the same no matter where you go. Mm-hmm. But your financial aid award can differ um, dramatically, say, from this school versus the next. Including one of the things that I have found that I've gotten a lot of questions about at the time that people are laying their financial aid awards out next to one another is that the line items on those awards are not always the same. Mm -hmm. So some schools will include automatically a parent loan in -hmm. their financial aid package. Mm -hmm. And I think that can sometimes feel confusing to people who are looking at that final number and want to know why it looks distinct. Well, because there's a larger loan in somebody's package or there's a parent loan or sometimes those distinctions are not uh, in the same line items. Absolutely. And that issue is actually um, being addressed at the federal level. Mm. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, whether anything is going to come of it short term, I don't know. Um, but there's a lot of talk in the financial aid community and with federal student aid um, that institutions need to do a better job of articulating what is actually in the financial aid right. offer uh, and not being kind of um, vague or, or incomplete right. in how it portrays the financial aid that a student is receiving. Plus Loan's a great example. Uh, any student that files a FAFSA is eligible to have a parent borrow a parent loan as long as they pass a, a credit evaluation. Right. To essentially cover the difference between the cost of attendance and the financial aid offered, right. which for some families can be a, a fairly significant you know, gap. Yeah. Um, to put the PLUS loan in as a line item as a student's financial and aid offered. And a PLUS offered, loan is a parent loan, right? Plus, Same thing. Yeah, I often say P for parent, P for PLUS. <laughs> right. Um, thank you, though, for clarifying. Um, there's so much vocabulary in financial aid. Yes. I need somebody to help me <laughs> yeah. to, to, to distill what it is that I'm talking about. <laughs> Um, but the PLUS loan is a parent loan. And and if it is a line item? If it's a line item, then essentially it can appear as if the, 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 the bill will be zero. Right. Meaning that the total out-of-pocket has been covered by a parent PLUS loan. Right. Uh, the truth, though, is that the parent may not intend to borrow a PLUS loan. Which um, would result in whatever the amount of that loan was suddenly becoming due. Absolutely. Even though it doesn't appear that way on the financial aid award. Absolutely. So, right. for instance, um, let's say... Um, the out-of-pocket cost for a family is $20,000. Right. That's cost of attendance minus financial aid is $20,000. That family may have $15,000 saved and or at the ready. Mm-hmm. They may choose to borrow a $5,000 plus loan just to kind of kind of carry the difference yeah. versus a $20,000 plus loan just because they can. Right. And as a counselor, that's really what we do in trying to help families better understand their options right. and how they can kind of put a financial plan in place yeah. to kind of limit borrowing or, or, or perhaps not borrow at all if, if possible. Yeah. Well, and maybe to back up just a little bit, because I do want to talk to you about interpreting financial aid awards mm-hmm. also, but for anybody going through the process now, just to get started, what does the FAFSA actually take into account? When, when a family is thinking about their financial circumstances and what their assets are and where they are, mm-hmm. what, what counts on the FAFSA? Really, there are three main kind of categories. Um, I'll start with the number in family and the number of, of those family members attending college. Right. So number in family, number in college. 
Um, for some families, you know, it's four in family, one in college. But then the younger sibling, say, enters college when the older sibling is a junior. Right. Let's just say then sure. they're going to be a family of four with two in college. And that affects the way that the FAFSA tabulates. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, which is why I tell families, you know, to file the FAFSA to start and then to be mindful of how changes in your family circumstances could indeed update or change the FAFSA right. output. Uh, so number in family, number in college is, is a big one. Um, obviously, income, both student and parent, I would say for the most part at Puget Sound, it's parent income yeah. um, that is is driving the EFC. Uh, and then finally, I would say assets or investments. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing to keep in mind, and it's, I think, um, if not often, it's sometimes overlooked, is that um, the retirement account that, say, a parent has is not considered an asset on the FAFSA. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think... Sometimes families might not read the fine print or best understand what is being asked of them. And so you certainly don't want to be putting, you know, your your, your 401k balance as an asset on the FAFSA. Don't list it. That's right. Don't list it. Um, Also, it would be the value of the home with which you live. Your primary residence. Absolutely. That's not to be included on the FAFSA either. Uh, Those are two main outcomes that I think is important for for listeners to understand because sometimes a family will sit down and they'll say like, well, they're asking about our assets. They must mean our retirement account and the value of the home we live in. But they don't. (laughs) Neither. Yeah. Neither. And so thanks for for, um, clarifying that as we talk through it because that's a real important thing to underscore. But essentially to answer your question, it's number and family in college, income and then assets of the family. And so if they're not looking at 401k balances and, and the value of, of the family's home, they're looking at things like mutual funds, say if you have a, you know, a, a, a stocks, you know, rental right. property, you know, things that aren't th- those two items that I mentioned. And those are going to also drive that EFC. One of the other main categories that I find that I get questions about a lot is someone who comes up to me and says, I own my own small business. What does that mean for my financial aid application? The value of your business is really not going to go on the FAFSA unless you have, I'm not certain if it's 50 or 100 employees Sure, or, or there's more. a threshold. There's a threshold, and you want to be sure to read the FAFSA to, to, to get that exact number. But for the most part, a small business owner isn't going to need to put the value of their business on the FAFSA. It's going to be more so just the income that they derive from that business sure. that would go on there. Sure. And the other question that I think I get maybe the most often about the FAFSA is that somebody usually waves me over to speak privately to them and says kind of in hushed tones, we're not going to qualify for anything on the FAFSA, then what? Mm -hmm. So partly I want to hear the answer to the then what question, but also is is that true that that many people are not going to qualify for any kind of financial assistance and that it wouldn't be worth it to fill out the FAFSA? This is a question that we've been talking a lot about in our office and in, in the enrollment division, because what we're trying to do is to best assist families in having reasonable expectations um, for what they might qualify for on the FAFSA. Right. Um, I think to myself, you know, a family of four making $100,000 of income a year, which is not a small amount of money, but but nonetheless, a family of four making a combined $100,000 of, of income without any real assets other than, say, the home they live in sure. or, or their 401k balance. Um, that family's EFC, foreign family, one in college, is going to be somewhere around... 18,000. And that's the number that the FAFSA will say they can afford to contribute to going to school. Correct. And, you know, we could debate the merits of that output. But the truth of the matter is, is you could be a family of four with one in college making $100,000 a year, 
thinking that you don't have any financial need. Right. Because your lived experience is comfortable. Right. Food on the table, yeah. roof over our heads. You know, I mean, we go out to dinner on Saturday nights. Right. That kind of thing. Right. But the truth is, is that at a college like University of Puget Sound, where our cost of attendance is higher than $18,000 a year. <laughs> Much higher. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have significant need. Yeah. to attend a place like Puget Sound. And so what I try and do is kind of demystify um, what families might think they qualify for or or think they might not right. qualify for and really speak truth to them and saying, you know, you might have you might not qualify for a federal Pell grant. Right. But that doesn't mean that you don't have financial need to attend a private college. Right. And so I really encourage the filing of the FAFSA unless you are just certain that, that you're not going to qualify for, for anything other than an unsubsidized loan, which right. we could talk more about if you'd like. But essentially, I mean, unless you are 100% certain, I would say err on the side of filing it. Right. Because you could file it and not receive financial aid and then choose not to file it, you know, say your sophomore or junior sure. year. But at least give it a run because sometimes families are surprised that they qualify more for more than they would have uh, imagined. Right. And as you're gesturing to, some of that comes from this again, qualitative sense of, well, we don't, we're not needy, mm -hmm. that is understood very differently in a, a process that is really leading to a huge investment and is working with really sizable numbers. Absolutely. And, you know, the the, the federal application is free. I mean, it, the, right. the first F stands for, for free. Yeah. Uh, and so there's really no cost to, to filing the FAFSA other than, you know, a couple of hours time on a weekend. Yeah. Um, but like I said, I think, you know, the, the difference could be a substantial amount of financial aid that students otherwise might not qualify for. Right. Um, and, and I do think, you know, wealth is, is kind of a funny word just <laughs> as need. Yeah. You know, it really, it can differ from family to family as, as to how they kind of interpret what need is or what wealth is. But there are a lot of middle to upper middle income families that might not feel as if they're, quote, needy. Right. But that will qualify for need on the FAFSA. Right. And so that's why I encourage them to, when in doubt, go ahead and file the thing. Hi, I'm Tori Hansen. Assistant Director of Admission at Puget Sound, working with students in the Mid-Atlantic and in the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as all of our transfer students. If you like what you hear on this podcast, you can learn even more about Puget Sound by coming to campus. Schedule your visit at pugetsound.edu visit. We'd love to host you. Review FAFSAs. Are there um, what are some of the most common pitfalls that you see? Are, are there questions or mistakes that come up again and again? The ones that I I mentioned earlier. Um, Retirement accounts and value of your primary residence. Yeah, I'll give you an example. Sure, please. Um, you know, we'll look at a student's FAFSA in their second or third year. Yeah. And the family will call, um, very concerned because all of a sudden they lost all of their grant aid in their second or third year, and they don't understand why. Right. And so we'll pull up their FAFSA. We're not able to review each and every FAFSA and verify that the family completed it correctly. Right. And so um, oftentimes it's the family that's calling us to say, you know, what happened to my Pell Grant or what happened to my need-based institutional aid? Yeah. And we'll pull up their FAFSA and we'll look and all of a sudden under investment, there's a six-figure <laughs> number. And I'll ask, well, it doesn't appear that you had that on your FAFSA last year, right. what changed from last year to this year? And they'll say, oh, wait, that's my retirement account. <laughs> right. And I'll say, oh, really? 
that's not something the, the balance of your retirement account is not something that you should have on the FAFSA. And so the, they'll go out and correct the FAFSA, yeah. and all of a sudden their aid is back in store right. as it was the previous year. So those are things that we we ask families to keep an eye out for and to ensure that they're completing it correctly each and every year so that we can sustain their financial aid from year to year. Right. And for folks who get through that process uh, successfully, Mm -hmm. what do we then get? When somebody fills out the FAFSA, what do we see and receive from that process? And then what do we do with it? Mm -hmm. Can we demystify that a little bit? Sure. So when a family goes out and files the FAFSA, uh, and I like to say it's the student that's filing the FAFSA with their parents kind of riding shotgun, if you will. (laughs) Um, For many families, that's kind of a a changing of the guard in a way to where all of a sudden the student is driving. I I, I will sometimes joke that the parent might be steering from passenger side. (laughs) Um, But nonetheless, it's very much the student that's completing the application with their parents' information. Right. And so uh, when they complete the the FAFSA, um, what happens is they will put on there a list of schools that they want the the application to get sent to. Mm -hmm. And then electronically, when they submit the FAFSA, each of those schools will receive the same report. It's the exact same report no matter where it is you you determine that it should go. Uh, We receive a daily file from the Department of Ed. Mm-hmm. Um, that we load into our system, which includes those FAFSA records for the, the students and families that have included us on their list. And then each day um, when we load that file, we'll review it to determine whether there's been a change that we need to act on, uh, whether it's a new FAFSA that we need to create a new financial aid offer right. for. Um, you know, there's So those are those are the ways in which we interpret the information sure. to, to then determine what kind of action item we might take. Right. Um, but it's a daily process where if you complete the FAFSA today, more than likely by Thursday, if not Wednesday, we'll have a copy of that in right. our system that we can act upon. And today's a Monday for That's anybody right. yeah, listening. We oh, may yes, not yeah, release. Yeah. yeah. yeah usually, but within about two or three days. Yeah. Sometimes if – you know, I have a sense of humor about this. But <laughs> you know, sometimes a family will file the FAFSA and they'll call be like, did you get it? Ten minutes later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not yet. Uh, there's you know, a daily process. And yeah. typically within 48 hours, we should have a copy of it on file. And for somebody who is submitting a a new FAFSA to us, either they're a first-year applicant or their financial circumstances have changed substantially, what do we do? What are the the components that can go into assembling the financial aid award that we will eventually return to them? Sure. Great question. Um, We in the financial aid office wait until the student's admitted. Naturally? Naturally, yeah. So we're not going to put a financial aid package together for a student that hasn't been admitted yet. Right. And so the first kind of action is that you've been admitted to Puget Sound. Mm -hmm. And a part of that admission, as you know, is often a merit scholarship. Right. Uh, And back to your question earlier, what happens if you don't file the FAFSA? Mm -hmm. You still qualify for academic merit scholarships. And there are a number of families where that's sufficient. That meets their need. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And so – but – as, as a part of our processing, once the student has been admitted, typically within two weeks of you being admitted, we will have reviewed your FAFSA if it's on file mm-hmm. and completed and processed a financial aid package that then is sent to the student. Right. Um, it's sent both in the form of uh, their admission portal mm-hmm. where they will receive notification that their financial aid is available for review. And it also is mailed. Um, we recognize the importance of parents in this process. And so we, we're not online only. We actually will mail a, a, 
a brochure, which includes all the financial aid information as well as instructions yeah. um, to each household. And so something will arrive on the doorstep, you know, typically within two to three weeks of your being admitted um, to the institution. And one just really important thing to know about that is you may get a separate communication. Well, you will get a separate communication notifying you of your admission and your merit award. Mm-hmm. And something else is coming. That's right. And and I have run into situations, even just this last spring, where I talked to students in April, months after they had gotten their decision, who were not aware that they had a full financial aid award because they had just seen their merit scholarship number and then mm-hmm. thought, well, that's it. Right. And, and that their total award was in twenty or thirty thousand dollars in excess mm-hmm. of that initial number. Yeah, no, that's a great point, and it's important um, in in all ways to be paying attention, obviously, to not just the mail but to your email, right? Um, because a lot of our notifications might be prompted via email. Um, but it is true if you file the FAFSA, and we have a copy of it in our office, we are definitely going to provide you with a financial aid offer that is different than just your merit scholarship. Mm -hmm. Now, for some family, let's say your EFC is above our cost of attendance. Right. In other Uh, words, you have a lot of financial resources available to you. Correct. Uh, In cases such as that, you'll get your merit scholarship right out of the gate. Mm -hmm. And then a couple of weeks later, you'll get a, a packet from us that includes unsubsidized direct loan. Which, which you could choose to turn down, right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You can always refuse the loan that's been offered to you. Um, but by rule, if you file the FAFSA, you're eligible to borrow. And so we will include a loan as part of your financial aid offer, whether you want it or not. Right. And so it is important that families know that they can always decline the loans that have been offered to them. Um, but even in that case, you're going to get something extra, right. which is above and beyond the merit scholarship. Well, and I do find sometimes when I'm talking to people about that, I think they sort of recoil at the notion of a loan. (laughs) Sure. But there are also, and you see this much more than I do, every spring families who find that a a small low interest loan, like the ones offered through the FAFSA, might be the difference between comfortably being able to afford sending their student to Puget Sound and Mm -hmm. having to reach for it a little bit. And I find the same thing to be true with outside scholarships, where sometimes in the fall, folks think, oh, there's no point in my applying for this $1,000 scholarship or $2,000 scholarship. And then in the spring, sort of wish that maybe they had that resource available to them. Absolutely. Especially to start with outside scholarships. Yeah, please. Um, You know, a $1,000 outside scholarship might take care of your books for a year, um, which at the onset might not sound like much, but you'd be surprised at how many students that we talk about, you know, how it is to get their books and to get them in a timely way and (laughs) and to have it be kind of well-organized and so forth. So, um, you know, every dollar counts. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important to note that. And just real quick, when we say outside scholarships for people who maybe don't know, what do we mean by that? We mean a scholarship that is coming to us from an external entity um, that isn't the government, meaning it's not a federal (laughs) or state grant. Right. It's not an institutional grant. We didn't give it to you. Thereby, it's an outside scholarship coming from the the local Kiwanis or Rotary or you you can fill in the blank. School district. Exactly. So there's a lot of outside scholarships out there that, you know, one of the things that that pains me is in April, I'll be sitting down with a family who is trying to determine whether we're going to be a good financial fit for them. And, you know, it's the difference between maybe two or three thousand dollars. Right. And we're not we're not able institutionally to kind of meet that gap. And so they'll ask, well, are there any additional scholarships that we might be able to apply for? And unfortunately, in April, by then it's too late. Right. And so I really encourage students, even seniors in high school that are thinking about applying to Puget Sound, uh, to consider researching with their, their college counselor, guidance counselor, or just in the local community, 
what kind of outside scholarships there might be uh, available for for application. Uh, in terms of the loan question, mm-hmm. you know, I think that there is such thing as a reasonable amount of loan uh, to borrow. Uh, for education, I think it's probably the best investment that a student can make right. um, on themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, um, I like to say that you know loans are a part of financial aid. It's not just grant aid, but right. but there is something called self help, which is the student helping him or herself. Yeah, that could be in the form of of loan or even work study. Right. Um, where I like to get involved with a student is when they're talking about taking you know the direct loan offered to them by virtue of them filing the FAFSA. Right. And then adding to that private loan or any other sort of loans that might help kind of, you know, um, kind of push the needle on their enrollment. Yeah. That's where I want to kind of take a step back and really go through the return on investment and best understanding kind of the amount of loan that a student is borrowing to, right. to say, attend Puget Sound. That but, what we might include automatically as an offer in your financial aid package is a reasonable amount. Mm-hmm. Adding to that is something to have a conversation about. Absolutely. And it's something that we want to have a conversation. Right. That's really the point of, of me wanting to be here, too, is like, <laughs> I want people to seek me out. I want people right. to seek our counseling team out. Uh, Frank and Charlotte are two counselors that we have in our office and uh, they kind of stand ready to help families best understand you know what's a reasonable amount of borrowing right um, kind of how does their financial aid compare maybe to other schools that they're looking at when it comes to public versus private mm-hmm. and you know large versus small and so we really want to be a part of that conversation you know with families but I think the amount of loan that we offer um, by virtue of a f- student filing a FAFSA, is, is a reasonable amount to consider borrowing. Uh, anything above and beyond that, I would want to be sure that we have a conversation right. just to make sure that we're kind of all dialed in to, to the same objective. Well, and one of the things that you are, are gesturing to, but that I hope people get from this conversation, is that you all really are benevolent counselors mm-hmm. and resources in the process much more than you are kind of um, – austere bankers with, with the keys to a vault and your arms crossed. Right. Well, remember kind of my background. Right. I mean, I come from student affairs. I come from admission. I get it. Yeah. I understand the complexity of the decision. And I don't want to make it any more complex than it already is. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think to myself, uh, more than likely I could find work outside of higher education. Yeah. Um, I'm purposefully here, mm. and it's because I'm an educator. It's because I see myself as an educator and, and as a counselor. And so you know, I tell this story to students all the time, and I've got a lot of familiar faces as I walk around campus and meet with students and say hello right. to students. And, and the truth is is that we're not the most exciting place to come. We get it. You know, Typically, student affairs, obviously admission is often a place where it's kind of like – the enthusiasm is infectious. Right. right. You know, student financial services isn't necessarily. That, that feels serious. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, I can't wait to go see my financial aid counselor, right? I don't hear that a lot. Um, and again, we also don't hear a lot of students coming in, you know, just wanting to say, you know, how great an experience they had with their financial aid offer. Right. Usually if they've had that experience, they think great and go about their lives. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but it stands true um, that, that we do – there's a lot to learn in our office. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of kind of uh, real world skills, you might say, right. um, that come out of a conversation with a financial aid counselor. Um, I, I would plug for a moment that we have a, a student loan um, statement that all students, once they're here, can go and look at what their loan payment repayment would be. Right. Uh, those are, I mean, financial literacy is something we really value. And so we want students to give us the opportunity to help teach and educate them on the finances of their education. Right. Well, and to that point, for someone, a prospective student who is maybe a year or a year and a half out from going to college, 
what are some of the best practice things for that student or their family to do to start preparing for this process? I'm so glad you asked that question because I'm doing that right now. Are you? I have a sophomore in yep. high school. And I'm not sure she wants to come to Puget Sound, uh, which means I really need to get my pencil sharpened and, and start <laughs> thinking about, you know, what's the cost going to be for our family. Yeah. Um, budgeting. I'm curious. I would love to poll the audience to see, you know, how many out of 10 do a monthly budget. Right. Literally sit down with a pen and paper and kind of figure out what are we spending on, you know, food and mm-hmm. gas and grocery, you know, those sorts of things. Right. A household budget. Exactly. I think that would be for families if they're not doing that already. What a great way to start and kind of preparing yourself for, for kind of the pinch of, of right. having a tuition bill. It's an investment. It is. And, and a new expense. And at the risk of discouraging savings, because that's not what I'm doing, <laughs> um, sometimes I'll have a parent come up to me and say, I've saved $20,000 for my son's education. And I'll say, right. that's awesome. Uh, I totally value savings. Right. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is 20000 divided by four mm-hmm. is 5000 a year. Right. And we cost a lot more than that. Right. And so to answer your question, Elena, it's really, you know, assuming you don't have a stockpile of savings, how much are you going to be able to budget out of your monthly, mm-hmm. you know, income right. um, to help support your student? And, and here's one thing that, that I've been thinking a lot about is my daughter, Harper, uh, she absolutely costs us money each month. <laughs> uh and so when you think about food, right. you know, something as simple as like your water bill each year, each month Showers. might be a little more by virtue of having a child in the household. Right. The same money that you're spending on that child living in your household is money that you can be spending on that child when they're living in a residence hall. Right. And so the monthly budget becomes, I think, an important component of this because you can start to think about, well, wow, all of a sudden, maybe there is like $1,000 a month that we could earmark. Right. Which equals twelve thousand a year, which all of a sudden we're getting somewhere, right? Especially in comparison to that twenty thousand of savings divided by four. Mm-hmm. And so, if you have both, well, geez, then you've got you know uh, even more seventeen thousand in that right. equation. And so, the idea is to start thinking more kind of critically about your monthly budget and what each family might be able to sacrifice in order to send their their child to college. Uh, My wife actually has told me stories of when she went to school, uh, her parents actually kind of created a bit of a club within the community where they all did free vacations. (laughs) It's like, we're not going to go on vacation unless the cost of admission is free. Right. (laughs) And that was kind of a, a tightening of their belts because they valued and knew to sacrifice for that kind of monthly budget. Right. Now, this isn't going to apply to all families, and I'm not here to say this is all you need to do. But I think it's a great start. Well, and one of the things I love about that tip is I do think that sometimes financial aid can feel like something that happens to you. Mm-hmm. You you fill out the FAFSA and that's kind of a um, that's a complex process. And then you just sort of wait with your hands on your lap. Maybe you apply to some outside scholarships, which is a good thing to do, mm-hmm. and then get the award back and hope that it works out. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. I love about what you're describing is to look at your budget and figure out what other financial resources you might have is an empowering thing to do and mm-hmm. prepares you to more fully understand what your response to that financial aid award can be when you get it. Mm-hmm. It really does. I mean, I think to myself, to use my, my, my children as an example, you know, I do a monthly budget. I'm kind of a nerd in that regard. <laughs> um, 
my wife calls me a nerd when she when we talk <laughs> about that. But we're we're very much partners in this, which is which is very important. Um, but just to think about, like I think just this past month, you know, we spent a couple hundred dollars on you know activities that the kids are involved in at right. the high school level. Right. And so again, as you start to look at your monthly budget, I think that families can get a little bit more oriented around kind of where they can kind of push and pull some of their finances to make this place a reality. Now, I will say one thing. You know, I will talk with families that will almost out themselves in terms of the sacrifice. <laughs> like, well, well, if we're spending this on education, these are all the other things that we're not going to be able to do. Right. And I'll say for four years, you might be right. Yeah. Uh, but it becomes, you know, a value proposition, obviously, for right. families. And that's one thing, you know, especially at a private institution where we're having to work hard to ensure that we remain affordable. Mm -hmm. That's the partnership with families that, that we really welcome. Uh, because for many families, this is a doable proposition. Right. It's, it's just harder when you sit down to the table to pay your first fall tuition bill and realize that you haven't done any of the planning. Right. That's where it becomes hard. And I think a good reminder that this is an investment. Right. As much as it is a terrific experience and all of the things that people in my office talk about and matters for the rest of your life, it's an investment. It's an investment that increases your earnings potential mm -hmm. as a student. It's an mm -hmm. investment in the life of the mind and mm -hmm. your success as a human being. And I, I think it can make the process easier to remember that that's mm -hmm. that's part of it. Yeah. And the data is clear. Uh, I think students that are making you know good enrollment decisions, um, studying um, in a way that will then promote their employability and opportunity post-graduation. I mean, the investment is clear um, that attending, you know, a four-year institution and receiving a bachelor's degree is a really good bet on yourself. Um, I think where it gets a little more murky is to the extent you're able to kind of, you know, go above and beyond with borrowing and other things in order to make that a reality. And that's a conversation I would love to have with a student on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah. And that's – I want to just say one more time, that's not just something you want to do, but something people can and should do. They Absolutely. should call the Student Financial Services office or drop in or email. Absolutely. Uh, but the truth is when you look at borrowing, um, you know, I sometimes will talk with students that earn their bachelor's degree and kind of – you know, consider themselves to have made it right. and go buy a $20,000 car, which is worth $12,000 when they drive it off the lot, <laughs> in comparison to $20,000 of student loan, which over the course of one's lifetime is, is going to, to benefit them greatly. Right. And so I think it's important to kind of understand um, the purpose of loan and also um, the opportunity that, that loan might provide, as long as it's within reason. Brian, before we wrap up, is there anything else particularly important that I didn't ask about, but that people should know or be aware of or have on their minds as they think about financial aid and affording college? Yeah. Um, I think most importantly, or what comes immediately to mind is what's called professional judgment. Mm -hmm. um, the financial aid offices throughout the nation, not just ours, but every financial aid administrator um, at any college um, has the capacity to um, invoke professional judgment in a case where a family's FAFSA does not truly represent their financial circumstances. I'll give you a quick example. Please. Uh, we've moved to prior prior year, which means that for a student filing the FAFSA for fall 20, their family would be using the 2018 tax return. Right. And I've already talked with some families that have said, oh, no, 2018 <laughs> was like our best year on record. Right. And now here in you know 2019 – um, 
one of us has lost a job, perhaps, mm-hmm. um, a reduction in income, an increase in unexpected expenses, sure. medical expenses. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things, things that happen. Things happen. And to, to feel as if the family doesn't understand that that's our role. Right. Um, is to look at that and be thoughtful about it. Right. Um, but we can't anticipate that. We need to hear mm-hmm. from families. And so it's important that families understand that if a special circumstance applies to them, whether it be reduction in income or increase in unintended expenses, um, we need to hear from them and we need to know about it because it can make a significant impact to someone's financial aid. Now, they're going to have to, of course, provide us with documentation. Right. And I mean, you just don't call and ask, but <laughs> but you do, well, you start That's by calling start. and asking yeah. um, and saying, hey, you know, it's funny, all of a sudden, you know, one of my parents has lost a job, and so the FAFSA doesn't really seem to represent our circumstances anymore. Right. Ding. Mm-hmm. That's what we want. We want to hear about that. Right. Because we can then um, evaluate, interpret, and make an adjustment to their financial aid to recognize those unique circumstances. And so that's something that I want all families to know exists. Because if you don't know, you don't know to ask. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, those are the families that might need it most. And we conclude all of our conversations with the same four questions. Okay. Question one is, uh, what's the best place on campus? My favorite place on campus involves walking. Mm-hmm. Um, I park each day um, in, in, a, in a lot where I get to walk by uh, the music building en route to Jones Hall. Mm-hmm. And there's a lawn kind of out in front of the library between Jones and the music building, um, which I've been here going on six years and I still rarely miss a morning where I don't pinch myself and say, this is one of the most beautiful campuses yeah. I've had the pleasure of being on. And so that's definitely something that um, evokes kind of emotion mm-hmm. um, when I think about my walk-in each morning. Um, pops on the lawn is something that goes on there. Oh, I love it. Absolutely. Just quickly explain what that is. Well, our music department at the end of each academic year um, will um, perform uh, out in the lawn mm-hmm. for the community. Usually it's around, I don't know, three or four o'clock on a Friday afternoon yeah. in, in May. May. It's nice out. Oh, geez. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's picturesque yes. and, and just perfect. And so, um, so that's something that, again, um, it's a great tradition and something that is, is very much special about this place. Um, so that's, that's, that's where I like to be. What are you reading right now? I recently finished a biography on Neil Young. Hmm. I really appreciate music. Mm-hmm. Um, I play guitar myself. Um, and so uh, Shaky is the name. It's It was written, I think, probably, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. But it's a really interesting kind of um, portrayal, you know, biography of, of Neil Young, kind of starting, you know, young in Canada and moving to, to uh, California. Um, and so that's one thing I've been reading or something recent. I also, as I think about what I like to read, I'm, I really like humor, too. Mm. So David Sedaris is somebody oh, that I really sure. like to read as well. What is your favorite place to eat in Tacoma? I like, um, again, this is kind of lunchtime mm-hmm. is what where my mind went. Sure. Um, on 6th Avenue, there's a place called MSM Sandwiches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very unassuming from the outside. I mean, you could miss it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it kind of looks like a convenience store with a right. parking lot. It, it does, very yeah. much so. And, and it is, actually. I mean, you can go in there and get, like, a roll of toilet paper, <laughs> <Sure>. I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but the truth is, is that they've got some amazing sandwiches. Um, the Cuban is one, I think, that I like the most there. Mm-hmm. But And the other thing I like about MSM is you can walk across the street after you're done eating your sandwich and get coffee at uh, Bluebeard, mm-hmm. which is on the corner there of 6th. And so those are two favorites of mine. 
Lastly, Brian, what makes Puget Sound special? Well, it's the familiarity of people, of places, of seasons. Um, I learned about Puget Sound as a grad student at Seattle University mm -hmm. back in 2001, where I was studying alongside uh, Kate Cohn, mm -hmm. who has since moved on, but uh, she was here. She's now, I think, practicing as a lawyer or will be soon. Yeah. Um, but at the time, she and I were, were in grad school together. I met Debbie Chi. Our was, director of residence life. Absolutely. Um, Marta, who also works in student mm -hmm. affairs, but just a long list of people that I kind of became aware of through this master's program at Seattle University. And the, the common denominator amongst them all was this place. Mm. And I appreciated and valued them as professionals and as people so much that I kind of it planted a seed in my mind where I was like, wow, there sure are a lot of colleges that one could work for. But this is one in particular that, you know, knowing these people, I find myself kind of as a part of that scene or crew. Mm -hmm. And so long story short, when this position opened up, I, I jumped on it and I've been here almost six years since. But um, that's one of the things I like the most about this place is when I say familiarity, that's what I mean mm -hmm. is when I'm grabbing coffee at Wheelock, um, I'll see a few students and we'll say hello. It's not something where it's like, oh, he, he's a staff and I'm a student, but right. there tends to be more of that kind of camaraderie and familiarity. Brian Gould, thank you for joining me on the Puget Sound podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you to our guest and to you, the listener. You can follow Puget Sound on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at UNIV, U-N-I-V, Puget Sound. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of P.S., the Puget Sound podcast.